There are two short statements that the Buddha made in one uh, teaching that are deceptively simple, but I think they're actually quite profound. I'd like to read them uh, to begin this evening. Luminous bhikkhus is this mind, but it is defiled by adventitious defilements. Luminous bhikkhus is this mind, and it is freed from adventitious defilements. These two short statements, one following the other, part of a longer, longer teaching. The word adventitious, we don't use a lot, so it's uh, good to define that for you. It means not an inherent part of something. In, in essence, simpler, you could say it means visiting. It's, it's transient. It's not an inherent part of, <clears throat> of the mind in this case, these defilements he spoke about. And so I love the fact that both of these statements begin with the words, luminous is this mind. And in the first, the mind may be defiled by these visiting forces. In the second, the mind being freed from those same visiting forces. So in in both, the mind may be defiled by them. They may be there, may be free of them. But this luminous quality that's, that's there in either case. That's the, the starting point. That's the basis for this teaching. That's there. This word luminous has to do with light, quality of being suffused with or, or glowing with light, clear, enlightening, shining. These are words, definitions from the dictionary of this word luminous. And so these adventitious defilements, these visiting forces, these are, of course, the various manifestations of what we call the three unwholesome roots of of greed, of hatred, and of confusion or delusion. That's what he's referring to there with these adventitious defilements and all the different ways those can manifest as ill will and fear and doubt and desire and dullness, stubbornness, all these manifestations, they show up in these ways. I think it's really important for us to reflect as we go through our days here, really to reflect and remind ourselves that that these are just visitors, that they aren't an inherent intrinsic part of who we are. They're not inherent to the mind. They may show up quite a lot, and at times they do cloud the mind. They do obscure for periods of time this natural luminous quality of the heart, of the mind. But they don't change anything fundamental about its nature. It's not changed by these things that show up at times. And so one aspect of our practice, one part of what we're doing here, you could say is reconnecting with this inherent luminous quality of the mind, of the heart, rediscovering who we are beneath habits of mind, patterns of reactivity that often diminish what we hold ourselves capable of 
what we believe to be possible for us as humans. And there are times all of us, I think, can reflect moments, they may be brief and fleeting, moments when we do have a connection with this empty, aware, luminous quality of the mind, of the heart. This essential nature that's already aware and already free because it's never been any other way. We touch that at times in our practice when we connect with just pure presence, knowing the moment just as it is. And even though this connection may not last, it may be fleeting, just because we lose sight of this luminous mind does not in any way negate the reality of that, does not diminish that truth in any way. And the forces of habit, these deeply conditioned patterns, mental patterns that we have, they're very powerful. They may, maybe they're lifetimes old, some of them, many lifetimes old if we hold that kind of view. And they, we see that operating in our lives, you know, some pattern that we feel like we've seen through it from every side. We know it up one side and down the other. And yet we still find it arising. We find ourselves getting hooked again in something that we, we can watch ourselves doing. It's like rising to the bait. I'm going to bite it. <laughs> so we just can see it happening. And it's the power of these things. These habits, they die hard some of them. And the power of these adventitious defilements, these visiting energies, it's strong. They're very strong. They're not to be underestimated. And, and we have been engaging with them for a long time. And, and in many ways, we've held them as a strategy for how we have lived in the world. And so, of course, they arise. Of course they're there, of course they visit and obscure this luminous mind at times. Well, luckily there are powerful, wholesome mental factors that naturally arise that come to our aid in practice. And they have the function to directly incline the mind towards freedom, towards awakening, towards enlightenment. It's another statement of the Buddhas, because I do not see even one other thing that when developed and cultivated leads to the abandoning of the fetters so effectively as this, the seven factors of enlightenment. What seven? The enlightenment factor of mindfulness, the enlightenment factor of investigation and of energy, the factor of rapture, of calm and concentration, and of equanimity, these seven. That's a powerful statement to, to put there with that. Not one other thing so effective, leading to the abandoning of these, these fetters that cloud and trouble the mind and heart. It's worth having a look at these factors of awakening. That's what we'll look, about, look at that this evening. The Pali word for this factor of awakening is bojanga. Bojanga, Mr. Bojanga. <laughs> now you're going to have that song in your head. <laughs> so some of these Pali words are really have a nice 
They roll off the tongue nicely. The bojangas. Bo is the same root for bodhi, awake. And janga is like a, a causative factor or a limb. So it's factor of, of becoming awake, awakening factor. And these, these healthy, wholesome, beautiful factors arise when the conditions are right. And their effect in, the, in our hearts and mind is to weaken and even help to remove the afflictive states of the kilesas, of the defilements. And there's a, the Buddha spoke to uh, this natural way that these factors uh, support our practice. He said, just as all the rafters of a peaked house slant, slope, and incline towards the roof peak, so too when one develops and cultivates the seven factors of enlightenment, one slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana. Like that. We're slanting and sloping towards Nibbana. This natural inclination in that direction with these. And so as we develop and cultivate these, or as this happens as a natural part of the deepening of our practice, we are inclining towards awakening. So it's a very optimistic uh, point of view. And often in many of the teachings, often throughout the suttas, the Buddha would speak of various, of the path and various um, factors and things within his teaching in terms of uh, causes and conditions that would lead to their arising, so often in terms of the nutriments said that, that uh, support, sustain them, that lead to their arising. So in another place he said, I say, bhikkhus, that true knowledge and liberation have a nutriment. They are not without nutriment. And what is the nutriment of true knowledge and liberation? It should be said, the seven factors of enlightenment. And so these bojangas, they also have their cause and condition for their arising. And they're sustained by, by nutriment also, the nutriment of wise and careful attention. So again, he said, the seven factors of enlightenment too, I say, they also have a nutriment. They are not without nutriment. And what is the nutriment of the seven factors of enlightenment? It should be said, the four establishments of mindfulness. Well, that's cool, because that's what we're, that's, that goes to the right, to the heart of what we've been talking about this whole retreat and what we're, that's what we're practicing, right? Mindfulness of the four foundations, the four established, the four satipatthanas, the four establishments of mindfulness. That's what we're, whether you notice it or not, that's what you're doing all day long is engaging with that practice. So that's good news for us. And so if we bring mindfulness in a relaxed, clear, steady, continuous way, and it doesn't have to be perfect, it just has to be pretty good. If we bring mindfulness to this uh, flow of our experience, to our life, then these factors of awakening, they arise, they're gathered together and arise as a natural result. It's a, 
an organic process. What we do, in essence, is we create an environment where they will arise naturally, organically. It's all natural process. The whole deal is just a natural process. And so in the same way, these defilements of mind, the fetters, the the kilesas, these energies which bind the heart, they obscure this natural luminous quality of the mind, of the heart. They also have their nutriment, causes and conditions that cause them to arise. And, And they're sustained by, you could say, unwise or careless attention or heedlessness. That is what sustains them. And so you could say that, another way you could put this is that the, the factors of awakening and these uh, defilements of mind, they both require a certain kind of internal environment to arise and then to uh, stick around, to flourish. We could make parallels for this in nature. You know, If you walk around outside here at IMS, if you go into the woods, there are ferns and other kinds of plants that do well in there. And if you were to transplant them out into this full sun in the field, they wouldn't do well, they wouldn't flourish there. And if you took some of the field grasses or the uh, plants that do well in meadows and put them in under the trees, they wouldn't do well there. They each, and different animals, you know, animals that need it to be cool and damp like slugs and snails, they don't do well out in the sunny pastures. And uh, so we see this is just the kind of um, environment that they need to be able to live and flourish and live well. And so the key condition for the factors of awakening and factors of enlightenment to flourish, to grow, to come to development is the light of mindfulness. They need light the way uh, plants need sunlight. And the kilesas, they don't do well in the light of awareness. They need the, the uh, you could say, the cloudiness or the darkness of unawareness, of heedlessness to flourish. That's the nutriment or the environment, you could say, they need. So I'll list these uh, factors again. The first one is sati, mindfulness. The second one, dhamma-vichaya which is investigation of dhammas. The third one is virya, virya, effort or energy, courageous energy. The fourth is piti, rapture, or sometimes called joyful interest. The fifth is pasadi, calm, samadhi, concentration, and the last is upekka, equanimity. So these are the seven bojangas. And sometimes, I know for myself, at times when I would hear these, a talk on this subject in the early days, I would, you know, I'd hear it as a, it's a list of qualities that I didn't have and have never even had a glimpse of. That's how it would strike me. And we may hear this kind of a talk and think, well, there's another list of things that I have no idea. where they are, if I've ever seen one of them. (laughs) And and so it's important to remember that these things, 
they have a subtle um, way that they manifest. They, they show up in a much more subtle way than these defilements. They're often obscured by these defilements. These troublesome mind states are like raging storms and the kalesas, uh, the kalesas are. The factors of awakening have a more subtle manifestation. And so we need to start to be able to recognize them. So they may be somewhat hidden in our experience. We start to get to know them. So I'm going to talk about each one at least briefly. Um, one could easily give an entire disc talk on, on each one of them, and that has been done. But that's not what I'm going to do. Um, so I'm giving a, a kind of um, broad overview of these seven factors. So sati, mindfulness, is the first one. And in, in a way, it's in its own category. It's funny, we were talking the other day about how the teaching team about different ways that thoughts manifest. And for some people, it seems to be words and some more images, um, pictures. And we all have both, of course, but um, it seems like certain types have more one or the other. I don't know. I see a lot of pictures. Like I picture these seven factors. When I think of them, there's a picture there. And mindfulness is out in front. <laughs> it's like a boat, and the others are pulled along behind it. So it's in its own kind of category. Um, because its function is to gather together and um, balance the others. So it, and it's the only one of them that it's, it's said we can't have too much of that. We can have too much of one of the others and, and things get out of balance because the way they function well is when they're balanced. Uh, but mindfulness, we, can, we can't have too much mindfulness. And so it's as though they are pulled along, they follow in the wake of mindfulness. They're pulled behind it, flow along. And so that's the key. And all good things flourish when mindfulness is present. And so we've spoken a lot about mindfulness over these weeks. We've talked about it in various ways. I'll mention a few of the key points. The, the very word is related to a word for remembering. And that's a, a big part of its function is remembering the present moment, remembering to be here. It's what gets us to show up, has that as one of its primary functions. It connects us with the, the moment in its, in its present arising. It has a, a non-preferential and non-interfering quality, mindfulness. It doesn't choose anything. It's like a mirror. It reflects whatever's there, not picking this and, and leaving other things uh, away. It, it can be aware of anything and it doesn't choose and it doesn't interfere with uh, experience. It just brings us face to face with this process of our mind, body, heart. And it has a quality, it's characterized by a quality of non-superficiality. And there's an image, uh, I'm not sure where this comes from. There's an image um, of the difference between throwing a cork or something that floats easily onto a stream of moving water and the difference between that and if we throw a stone into the water. 
and the cork just rides along the top and bobs along and flows along on the surface of the stream, but the, the stone would sink, sink right down to the bottom of the stream bed. And mindfulness is then likened to the, the stone in that it sinks below the surface. It's not superficial. It goes more to the heart of things. So this quality of mindfulness that functions to gather together and balance these other six factors. And so the others are grouped into two categories of three that are, uh, have the function to energize the mind, the heart, to bring energy, to uplift, and three that have the function to bring calm and tranquility. So this balance of energy and calm, energy and tranquility, this is a lot of what is, is uh, being worked with in our practice as we cultivate these factors. They have to be balanced to function well. And that's part of what mindfulness does, does that. It takes care of a lot of things for us. And so then you could say the mind that opens to liberation arises out of this balance in the mind and the heart. Where we're not too high or blissed out or too caught in um, analysis and thinking about that comes with energetic states and we're not too cooled out where we slide off into dullness or stupor or fogginess. Because if we're out of balance, one either way, we tend to disconnect from the moment, to disconnect from the truth, from reality. And so this balance leads to a mind and heart that are open and receptive, this balance of energy and calm, of tranquility and energy leads to a mind and heart that are open and balanced and receptive. And, and there's a kind of, um, there's a real sort of inner strength that comes from this balance that allows us to open to things and we don't go into extremes of, of agitation or restlessness or worry or fall off into dullness and uh, stupor. stupor. So I'll start with the energizing factors. The first one is investigation of dhammas, of things as they are. This factor of investigation. Sometimes using the word investigation can be a little bit problematic in in, uh, talking about this factor because for many of us it tends to we tend to think of it as a kind of more of an intellectual analysis of thinking about, of figuring out on that level. I think it reflects a lot of our training, our schooling and training is to look at investigation this way. And this kind of investigation is a kind of intuitive, direct discerning um, that it's a direct touching the the characteristics of stuff, of phenomena, distinguishes that in a direct way, not in a, an, an analytical way. Uh, someone once used a description as, as though one were in a, a room without light, a darkened room, and were given a flashlight and could turn it on and begin to uh, shine that light around and see what's there. We use it, uh, that kind of image for this investigation. It points to things, shows what's there, direct seeing of it. 
And so it has this, it draws our attention near to whatever's happening to our experience. It increases our connection, our intimacy with it, you could say. Functions in that way. There's a sense when we, as this factor is developed, of, of really connecting or plunging into, almost a kind of diving into uh, the flow of experience a little more directly and deeply. It connects us with what are called the paramatta dhammas, which are um, it's usually translated as ultimate realities. Or we could say it, it, it connects us with the direct knowing of things free of concepts about them, of ideas, beneath our concepts and ideas, you could say. So for example, I guess, yeah, last week I talked about the uh, four elements, this way of um, investigating or of, um, relating to the experience of materiality in the body, in the world, internally, externally, in terms of the four elements of earth, air, fire, water. Well, these are said to be the paramatta dhammas, the, the, um, the really fundamental way of seeing materiality in terms of these kinds of things. So investigation helps to reveal those. And uh, it also reveals what are said to be the universal or common characteristics. So it doesn't stop there at these unique individual characteristics of things that arise, like hardness and softness and coolness and warmth in terms of the material elements. But then it also uh, touches into the common characteristics of all things, of all phenomena, of the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and coreless quality or characteristic of all things. And so, and it's through seeing these universal characteristics, this is the the realm of investigation where liberating insight arises. All of insight is arising in relation to seeing deeply into these three universal core common characteristics. And so this factor of investigation, it it tends to immerse us more in uh, our experience. And there's a quality of of interest and uh, curiosity that come along there with that. This direct touching, this direct intimacy with our life. And it doesn't matter so much um, the interest that comes there with that investigation. It's not doesn't matter what the experience or object of our attention might be. You know, it, it's, it doesn't have to be something that we would think of in everyday life as an interesting thing. You know, you could see this in terms of, um, I'll say, mindfulness of breathing. You know, most people, if you stop them on the street and say, well, you know, is the in-breath, oh, isn't that interesting? The out-breath, you know, they... They're going to slowly back away and say, have a nice day or something, but they're not going to, you know, generally tend to agree with you that that's a really cool, interesting subject to think about or have any relationship to. But in our meditation, it can be fascinating, can't it, if we're really there with it. So the interest is not in the object, it's in, in our relationship to it. It seems obvious, but it's actually, that's quite an uh, important thing. Where does the interest, that's a a mental factor, that's in the mind. It's not inherent in any particular object. So then the second one of these uh, 
um, energizing factors is, is uh, virya, virya. Someone left me a note and say, why do we say V sometimes and W sometimes? <laughs> it's because we're inconsistent. <laughs> <laughs> and because we learned the Pali different times from different sources because we're just lazy and bad. <laughs> so um, all V's should be W's. <laughs> but I'm going to say Virya because Virya doesn't come off my tongue as well. <laughs> so Joseph already spoke at great length an entire talk on this quality of effort or energy. So I'll, I'll say just a few, reiterate a few key points about that. Joseph spoke a lot about it in terms of uh, qualities of courage and perseverance. There are two key qualities there. Uh, there's kind of a bravery there with uh, this quality of energy effort. Um, that's actually really, really important because you know this isn't easy. Any of us who have been on this path for any length of time know that it's often it's not easy. A lot of the time it's not easy. And so we need to have a qualities of courage and a real perseverance, the steadiness, a steadfastness that um, keeps us going through the ups and downs. It's not easy all the time. And so that's that's very key part of this quality of energy or effort. And and so it's a feeling that we're not um, faltering in the face of of the ups and downs of, of our life, of our practice, of our experience over the day, over the long haul. We're not fighting against it and struggling on the one hand, and we're not uh, shrinking away and retreating from in the face of changing experience. We have a, a certain kind of strength there, a bravery, a courage, and a perseverance. And there's a a key to the use of effort or energy, you know, finding what is right effort. This is, be cool if we could just get it and then, you know, okay, this is right effort and that'll just work now for the rest of this life or whatever. But it's a constant process of balancing that. What's right effort in one moment may not be in, in another. So this is, is a constant um, uh, dance of what's right effort. You know, we don't just get it in place. It's constantly being refined and adjusted as our practice unfolds. And, you know, too much effort, we can get tense and tied and restless, and, and then eventually we'll wear ourselves out. We get exhausted. Too little effort, and we fall into, into a dull, sleepy place. So it's that balance of, of effort. And then with right or wise, balanced effort, then... You know, our attention lands right on the object and doesn't crush it with too much zeal. And it doesn't slide off when uh, and lose touch. It just lands lightly there like a bird. And so in this way, when effort is balanced, then there's a sustainable quality to our practice. Or we can, we can, it's doable, you know, and we're not... It's, we don't have the idea, too much effort might be, I'm going to be mindful for the whole day. That's a tall order, but we can be mindful for this moment and then the next one. So we, it's this light effort made repeatedly over time. That's more sustainable. 
That's really key there. Okay, just this moment. That's all we're doing anyway. And if we hold it that way, it's, it's much more doable. It's just this moment and then the next one, if we happen to still be here. And if we're not, we will show up sooner or later. We'll do it then. And we bring our sincerity to that. Then the third of these is uh, piti, rapture, joy, or joyful interest, translations of this word piti. And Sally spoke about it the other night as one of the four uh, factors of concentration, jhanic factors, piti. These things show up on more than one list. So it has that function there, and it's also here on this uh, factors of enlightenment list. And so this, quality of rapture or joyful interest, it's characteristic, it has characteristics of delight, of happiness, even of satisfaction is part of the experience of that. It, it possesses these qualities in and of itself. You could say those are aspects of its own, um, those are part of its own characteristic, but it also has the ability to um, infuse other uh, objects or other experience with uh, these qualities of joy and happiness, of delight. It um, pervades them. It, it can bring a real kind of a deep delight to uh, practice. And it's, it's really useful because we can, we can get very serious in our practice. And I think it's, it's good to look at the word serious. You know, we, we are sincere. We're committed, we're dedicated. Those are all good things. So if that's what we mean by serious, but if it means we're serious in a way that um, is a kind of heavy bearing down, then that's not such a useful quality of seriousness. And sometimes we can lose touch with the quality of joy, joyful interest. And piti is a kind of, it's a spiritual joy. It's a... um, it's not just having a, having a good time kind of joy, even though it may be quite delightful and pleasant um, in the mind and the heart. It can lift, sometimes uh, lift us out of an overly serious way of approaching our practice. And there's one definition, more of a technical definition of, of this quality of piti. It said that it's... Um, uh, Characteristic is endearing. I like that. It has the characteristic of of being endearing or of endearing, infusing things with an endearing quality. And uh, its function is to refresh the body and mind. It has a refreshing quality, and its manifestation is a kind of elation or an uplifting, you could say. And when it's strong, it can fill the mind and body with... um, qualities of lightness and, and agility, flexibility, it can enhance that. Uh, there may be uh, physical sensations that come along with this. It's a mental quality, but it affects the body. The way I was talking the other day about how mind and body condition one another. When this is strong, there may be uh, very pleasant physical sensations in the body. Although at times, the, the physical sensations may show up as um, things that are not that pleasant, certain kinds of pressure, and um, it can be too strong sometimes. 
and not be, always be experienced as pleasant. Um, it's a kind of joy that, that comes out of, out of this quality of intimacy that uh, comes through our mindfulness and through this quality of investigation and effort all get us to more intimacy with life and PT arises uh, from that intimacy. And as I was saying, it doesn't, uh, this quality, qualities of interest, joyful interest, and um, they don't depend, they're not uh, tied to what we would say were interesting objects in some traditional way of thinking of that. This quality of PT can even arise at times when in relation to something that we would describe as difficult or painful. But if we're really there and connected, this quality can arise even at those times. So that's really interesting. That even when we're being mindful of something that we would describe as very strong, unpleasant, equals painful, (laughs) sensation in the body, but this quality of joyful interest can arise even at a time like that. And then it pervades our experience with this quality of delight. It, it has a transforming effect in those moments. It's quite amazing, actually, to see this. It infuses things with happiness. And so, and it's said that there are five kinds of this uh, rapture, this joy of piti, there's minor or lesser rapture, kind of sometimes goosebumps and chills and kind of shivering feelings in terms of its physical sensation. You don't have to worry about these, but they're kind of interesting. <laughs> There's momentary rapture that's said to come kind of like uh, flashes of lightning, intense, intense jolts of it that come through. There's a showering rapture that comes like waves and showers down. There's uplifting rapture. And sometimes the body, uh, the mind and the body can feel very light, almost like a floating quality with that uplifting rapture. And it's said when it's really strong, it will actually lift us up off the ground. I have a sweet story. I'm going to tell it. I might not have time, but I like it. I'm in the mood. It, um, I heard it once. It's a story from the Visuddhi Maga, and uh, Joseph used it in one of his talks. And at the time when I was listening, it brought a lot of joy into my heart, right in the hearing of it. So I'm a devotional kind of guy. So um, maybe it'll do that for some of you. I don't know. Anyway, this is a story of a young woman back, I guess probably you know, one of the ancient times, we'll say. I don't know when. This took place in the time of the Buddha, let's say. She was in a village of uh, Vatakalaka near a monastery, the Jirkandaka Monastery. And um, her parents were going to go to the monastery, I think because it happened on a full moon night. And even though it's, the moon's not out now, it was a night like tonight, uh, an aposita, full moon aposita. And uh, the, her parents were going to go and uh, listen to the Dhamma and go to visit the monastery. And um, the young woman was pregnant. She had gone to her parents' house to give birth, a tradition to do that. And um, the, her parents said, no, you should stay home. It's not a good time for you to go out because you're near, give, near the time of giving birth. And they said, They'll, we'll go listen and we'll get the merit on your behalf. And so she wanted to go, but she said, okay, I'll stay home. And she went out onto the balcony of their house. It was on somehow on a hill. She could look down and see the... the uh, 
monastery ground and the uh, beautiful shrine there, the Akasachetya shrine, glowing in the moonlight. And um, people were making offerings and circumambulating. It was quite a lovely scene there. And she could hear the chanting of the nuns and monks who were there were chanting. And she thought to herself, oh, they're so lucky that they can go into the monastery and wander around this beautiful shrine and hear the sweet chanting and beautiful preaching of the Dhamma. And then watching this in her, she had a vision and the shrine looked like a mound of pearls. They get quite flowery in these things. And she had such joy and delight in seeing it that um, she was rose up into the air and she came down on the terrace outside the shrine and her parents came cruising up and said, wow, how'd you get here? <laughs> she said, they said, what road did you take? And she said, I, I came through the air, not by the road. She said, I was standing gazing at the shrine in the moonlight and a strong joy arose in me with the Buddha as its object. And then I didn't know if I was standing or sitting, but only that I was rising into the air. And then I came down to rest here on the, on the terrace of the, uh, of the uh, shrine. So I hope you all have this uplifting, strong uplifting wrap. We'll come in later and you'll all be floating. <laughs> so then the fifth kind, there's another one, pervading rapture. This is said to pervade the entire body and mind. And, and when it's strong, we can really feel a lot of ease and comfort in the body. So these are the, the three energizing investigation, energy or effort, and then uh, piti, rapture, joyful interest. And then there are three calming ones. Uh, the first one is calm. Pasadi is the Pali word for calm. It's sometimes called cool calmness. And um, the coolness has to do with, um, it's, it dispels uh, the, the heat of an agitated, restless mind, you could say. Um, its characteristic is calming both in the mind and in the body. Pasadi, it, it will um, calm unrest and unease, agitation. Its function is said to be to remove or suppress heat, the heat of agitation. So that's this coolness of calm. And uh, you know, I could see, think of heat as arising from restlessness and worry and agitation. So it, it removes this heat, re- replaces it with uh, an ease and a coolness there. So there's this non-agitation in the, in the body, in the mind, and the heart with calm as it grows strong. And it really rests in the present moment. Um, often when calm becomes, as calm becomes more strong, it feels as if uh, things become more simple. There's a simpleness to our experience in a way. Uh, or, or things almost slowing down a bit in a certain way. Um, there's a, a relaxing with into the moment when calm becomes strong. And it can arise um, also in, in brief uh, calm. It's not always that it gets there and just stays for periods of time. It, there can be brief moments of calm, like a um, sense of momentary calm within a more stormy, agitated, or not agitated, but a more um, energized state. There can be uh, like resting in the center of a storm where there's a sense of at least brief resting within a highly energized, agitated state. And it's said that this calm um, invariably follows on from uh, uh, after the arising of 
of joy, of rapture, especially this pervading kind of rapture that in, infuses the body and calm is said uh, to often always, almost always follow uh, on from that. And when it's strong, um, again, there can be a lot of sense of being able to sit uh, in meditation for longer periods. Uh, may just be no wish to get up at all. It's a factor of calm. And then there's uh, the second of the tranquilizing factors is samadhi, concentration. We've talked about this as well. Um, concentration is characterized by um, non-distractedness or non-scatteredness of mind. The mind tends to um, stay with the object, even if it's changing objects, the mind tends to stay there, uh, not wandering off, not slipping off. So the attention is, there's a kind of stillness there and a connectedness, really connected with the moment, just as it is. And so this quality of samadhi, characteristic of samadhi, it, um, it gathers together and stabilizes the mind and mental factors. So, they're not, so things are not scattering off, keeps them in a group. They don't disperse, non-dispersedness. The mind tends to really remain with the object, as I was saying, and um, a movement towards greater stillness, quiet in the mind as it strengthens. And as we've mentioned, there are two ways that one can develop uh, concentration, samadhi, on a single object to the exclusion of all others, where we just keep the attention on one object, um, turning away from any other, a kind of continuous concentration on a single object, and momentary concentration, what's called kanika samadhi, which is concentration on changing objects, momentary objects. Um, the, the key, you can think of, samadhi is born of the continuity of mindfulness, whether with a single object or changing objects. That's, that's where samadhi comes from. It's that continuity of connection grows from that. And uh, that can be, even with objects that may be changing very quickly, samadhi can grow and strengthen. And the jhanic factors that Sally spoke about, they apply in either one of these ways of developing concentration, whether it's uh, on a single object or uh, this kanika samadhi, those same factors of vitaka, vichara, piti, sukha, ekagata, they come into play, they develop and strengthen uh, in either one of these ways of practicing. And so it's this uh, more, this continuity mindfulness that has fewer and fewer gaps or breaks in it is what develops this quality of samadhi. And uh, when it's strong, it, it brings a, a great kind of tranquility connection to the mind, brings a, a strength and power, a composure there. Uh, it's a great relief from the wandering mind, from the restless mind. It's like we're settled into a, a kind of zone when samadhi is strong. We're not pushed and pulled around by experience. And concentration is really said to be one of the keys to the arising of uh, insight and wisdom, approximate cause for that. And we can see how this would be the case because when the mind is stable and still to some extent, it doesn't have to be perfect, but this stability and calm uh, collectedness of uh, samadhi um, allows for there to be space for insight to arise. The mind is not running all over the place. 
insight into the more subtle nature of things can show up then when the mind is more stable. So then the last one of these, uh, um, tranquilizing the final uh, factor of awakening is upeka, equanimity. And this is um, this sense of balance in, in the face of the changing nature of our experience. Equanimity, state of mind that rests in the center of things, you could say. It's not pulled to extremes. And it allows us to be with things just as they are without falling into reactivity in relation to, to things. And when equanimity, as it becomes strong, as it begins to develop, then um, patterns of reactivity that we may have seen in our hearts and minds, they tend to not arise so much. As it becomes stronger, they don't arise at all. The mind is not moved by things. Uh, things that can often bother us, they, they just lose all power to upset us. They don't do that. And sometimes people worry that there's somehow this quality of equanimity that it points to some um, way that we're become less indifferent that we become indifferent or, or not connected, that it has a quality of not feeling, of, of numbness or something, of not feeling things, which is not at all the case with equanimity. It's not, um, it's not a numb, indifferent state at all. Indifference is actually said to be the near enemy of uh, equanimity because it can sort of resemble it. But indifference is actually disconnected. It's not there. But equanimity is totally connected, feels everything just intimately, just as it is. But it's not, um, but it's a, a state of balance in relation to what's arising. So there's no quality of indifference or apathy or, or uh, disdain. It's, it's just not preferential. It, this non-preferential preferential quality is strong there with that. And it's a great relief when this factor begins to strengthen it's said that equanimity will fill in where there is a lack and it will remove where there's an excess. It's a quality of balance that comes with this. It fills in where something is lacking and it removes when there's too much. And uh, when this balance of mind is strong, it can at times feel as, if, as though we don't have to really make much effort to be mindful. We can feel more like the, the practice starts to feel as though it's just doing itself. It's just has it's a kind of momentum there, but a balanced kind of momentum. Uh, this is part of its manifestation. There's an image that's used um, as likened to uh, someone who's driving a, a wagon or a carriage that's pulled by a team of horses, and and the driver just lets the horses do the work and just settles back. It's a quality of settling back and letting the mindfulness carry us along. And um, when this, when equanimity really begins to become very strong, very powerful in our practice, in our minds, um, it, it develops in what is sometimes called high equanimity. Or sometimes it's called equanimity regarding formations, sankarupeka. Jnana, the insight into uh, equanimity regarding formation. Sometimes it's also called six-limbed equanimity because it arises at, at the six sense doors, you could say. So there's equanimity regarding um, arisings at, in any 
aspect of experience at any sense door, this six-limbed equanimity. And at times when, when equanimity, the factor, really is um, characterizing our practice in great part, when it's very strong, things can become very smooth in the practice. The mindfulness becomes very uh, agile, you could say. It just stays with the object very easily. It does it itself. The mind is not moved by anything. Pleasant, unpleasant does not move the mind. It's a very um, high quality of balance. There's no chance for attachment or aversion. They don't, can't arise in that. They just don't show up. It's said that when it's very highly developed, it's, it's said to be similar to the mind of a fully awakened being, of an arahant. Um, it's unshakable quality of balance there. It's, um, uh, you could, there's a beautiful um, description of uh, when the Buddha-to-be, the Bodhisattva, in the night of his awakening was sitting under the Bodhi tree and he's assailed by the armies of Mara, all these different weapons and all things to try to get him to move, everything possible. And it said the great one's mind was not moved. It's this very um, refined, powerful equipoise of high equanimity. And it's this balance, this great balance of mind, of heart, that um, is what prepares the mind to let go into the unconditioned, you could say, to open to the realization of Nibbana great balance of mind, of heart. And so to a certain extent, there is a way that the, the development of these factors of awakening do kind of flow in a sense in the way that I spoke about them tonight. To some, in some ways that is true, and yet at the same time they're all present. So it's not like this one and then that one and then that one in a stepping way. But there is a bit of a flow, the energizing ones tending to lead to the calming ones. But there are times in our practice where we see them all there and we see them balancing one another. We see that just as a a natural process. So it's not that that it's only a a linear progression, It's, it's not that. But there is a certain aspect to that, um, organically culminating in this quality of high equanimity. And so um, I guess I just want to say to end tonight that the key thing to, the key thing to get out of this talk, and at least one thing, is, is the understanding that um, the, the Continuity of mindfulness is what gathers together and develops and brings these along. They flow in the wake of that. So we don't have to do them all in any kind of a doing. We just have to keep going steadily with gentle perseverance with our practice. And they come along. They flow along. So uh, be sure and, and remember that it's not a doing of these things so much. We start to learn to recognize them, to taste them to develop a, a taste for them, in a sense. That's part of what happens in the practice. You know, because we've been using a strategies of, of greed, hatred, and delusion as strategies for finding happiness, going for the pleasant, getting away from the unpleasant, falling into confusion in between those two. That's been 
that's been our strategy for a long time in some ways. So we have a certain taste for those things, even if we see that they don't really work. And so part of what we do is develop a taste for these more subtle qualities of heart that are actually, in the, in the long run, in the end, they're more useful. They actually lead us uh, onwards. They, they slope us and slant us towards awakening. It's their function. And it's, this is not easy to do. This is a real shift in, in uh, orientation, a shift in our consciousness. It goes against a lot of conditioning. It's a radical shift and it, it takes time for that. But uh, we start to develop more of a taste towards these, for these things and for their, the deeper happiness that's possible through these development of these factors of awakening. So I'll end now with some more of uh, words from the Buddha. Because these seven factors of enlightenment, when developed and cultivated, lead to going beyond from the near shore to the far shore. Having said this, the fortunate one, the teacher, further said this, few are those among humankind who go beyond to the far shore. The rest of the people merely run up and down along the bank. When the Dhamma is rightly expounded, those who practice in accord with the Dhamma are the ones who will go beyond the realm of death, so hard to cross. Having left behind the dark qualities, the wise person should develop the bright ones, having come from home into homelessness where it is hard to take delight. There in seclusion, one should seek delight, having left behind the pursuit of sensual pleasures, owning nothing. The wise person would cleanse herself of mental afflictions. Those whose minds are well-developed in the factors of enlightenment, who through non-clinging find delight in the relinquishment of grasping, are the luminous ones with taints destroyed, fully quenched in the world. So let's just sit quietly now for another minute or so. Thank you for listening this evening. And uh, we have time for some walking and then chanting at nine o'clock. And then you'll all sit up all night in the full moon. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.